The W.B. Davis Hosiery Mill opened its doors in Fort Payne, Alabama in 1907. More would follow, and by the year 2000, over 100 mills were in operation there, employing 7,000 people and producing more than half of the United States sock supply. The town was, in fact, dubbed the sock capital of the world. If it weren't for four cousins getting together to play in a talent contest in 1969, Fort Payne might only be remembered for its socks. Teddy Gentry was born in Fort Payne in 1952. When he was just a kid, Teddy and his mom went to live with his grandfather on his small cotton farm just outside of town on Lookout Mountain. As I'm sure you can imagine, a town full of sock makers will take all the cotton it can get. In fact, his cousin Randy, who was two years Teddy's senior, also grew up on a cotton farm on Lookout Mountain. Teddy and Randy often played together growing up and started singing together in church when they were just kids. When they were in high school, Teddy and Randy enlisted their cousins Jeff and Jackie and started a band. The four cousins called themselves Young Country. In 1969, they played in a local talent contest, hoping to win $500 and tickets to the Grand Ole Opry. They won the contest, but it had been poorly attended. So while they did get the tickets, the cash prize was swapped for gas money to the show. Jeff's dad ended up driving them. Soon thereafter, Jackie joined the army and while the other three continued to play music together, school and work took precedence. In 1972, they added their friend Bennett to the lineup on drums. They changed their name from Young Country to Wild Country and started to play a little more frequently, including a recurring gig at the Canyonland theme park on Lookout Mountain. Canyonland sounds like it was an amazing place, with putt-putt golf, a train, a zoo, a ferris wheel, bumper cars, and even a tilt-a-whirl, my favorite, when I was a kid. The highlight, though, was a 1,500-foot-long chairlift, which would take families down into the canyon, where they could enjoy a picnic lunch and a swim in Little River. While playing these gigs was fun, the fellas decided to take a big chance. They quit their day jobs to try and make it as full-time musicians. And so it was that in March of 1973, the four of them packed up their things and moved to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, a town I once called home myself. They took a job there at a bar called The Bowery, playing six nights a week and taking in return only the tips that landed in their jar. On the flip side, they could leave their equipment set up and had plenty of time for practicing and writing songs. And practice they did, because if someone requested a song they didn't know, there went that tip right out the window. Over the next few years, they grew a huge repertoire of songs and came up with a system to make more money. For a dollar, they would play your song when they got around to it. For five, they'd play it next but for $10, they'd stop whatever they were playing and play your song immediately. They weren't making millions at the Bowery, but they were doing all right, 
and having a good time doing it. By 1977, their fourth year at the Bowery, they had a pretty solid local reputation and decided to try and take it to the next level. They went home to Fort Payne, went to their hometown bank, and borrowed $4,000 to record an album. They sold the album at their shows, but also sent them out as demo tapes to record companies. They finally got a bite as tiny GRT Records signed them to a one-album deal. Their debut single, I Want to Be With You Tonight, did okay and went to number 78 on the Billboard charts. Soon thereafter, GRT went bankrupt and the band learned a tough lesson about reading the fine print. It turned out there was a clause in their contract forbidding them from recording for anyone else. They spent the next two years saving every penny they could from the tip jar at the Bowery to try and buy out their own contract. Finally, in 1979, they were free again. Over the course of their time in Myrtle Beach, they had gone through several drummers, but in 1979, they hired a rock and roll drummer from Massachusetts named Mark Herndon. He helped them speed up their songs a little bit and was maybe just the extra push they needed. That year, the four of them recorded the song, I Wanna Come Over, and sent the single out to radio DJs and program directors across the country. One copy fell into the hands of the guys at MDJ Records in Dallas, who decided to give them a shot. They released I Wanna Come Over as a single, and it went to number 33 on the charts. Their next song would go to number 17 and would win them a spot on a show called New Faces in Nashville. While the show wouldn't let them use their drums, and Nashville was definitely not in the habit of signing groups, there was just something special about the boys from Fort Payne. They signed a deal with RCA Records in 1980, quit their job at the Bowery, released an album, and took off like a rocket ship. Their first single with RCA went all the way to number one, as would the next 20 singles they released. Over the next 10 years, they would send 27 songs to the top of the chart and were named the Academy of Country Music's Artist of the Decade. The rest is history. They would release 26 studio albums, 21 compilations, and four live albums, and have had 34 number one songs. They've sold 75 million albums to date, making them the most successful group in country music history. And in 2005, they were inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. They even got to play at the White House for George H.W. Bush in my hometown of Washington, D.C. Despite their distinctly Southern and country lyrics, their pop influence and long hair gave them broad appeal as they blurred the boundaries of the genre. I remember when I was 16 and had no interest in country music. When their songs came on a jukebox in West Virginia, I found my toes tapping along and my head start to bob along with the beat. I've been a huge fan of their music and country music ever since. Like I said, there was just something special about those boys from Fort Payne, the sock capital of the world. 
You do know who I'm talking about, don't you? If you don't, you'll have to remember back to the terrible deal they signed with their first record label. GRT went bankrupt, and it took the guys two years to buy out their own contract. But the label had done one thing, which would leave its mark on the band and the world of country music forever. They explained that the boys were playing at the beach in South Carolina, and if they wanted more credibility, it might be a good idea for them to embrace their roots. They weren't going to release that first single under the name Wild Country, but rather under the name we know and love today, a tribute to their home state, Alabama. I've traveled the country over Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and I am thrilled to be with you today. As hard as it is for me to believe, this is episode 20 of the podcast. We've been to some pretty awesome places together, haven't we? and certainly shared some great stories and heard some amazing music along the way. This episode brings us into our 10th state together, and the final one for season one of the podcast, Alabama, the heart of Dixie. I've had a great time in Alabama, from the beaches of Gulf Shores in the south to the bustling cities of Mobile, Montgomery, and Birmingham, and from charming small towns to beautiful lakes and state parks, finishing my visit high on Lookout Mountain. I found the state to be more modern and diverse than I expected, but with Southern hospitality still in full effect. If you'd like to see photos from my time in Alabama or any of the other states we've visited on this journey together, I've just finished updating the photo galleries on my website. You can find them at www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, gobeforeisleep.com. You can also find me on Facebook, on Twitter at MilesToGoTweet, and on Instagram at MilesToGoBeforeIsleep, all using the number two for me and you. And finally, you can find podcast-specific Facebook and Instagram accounts, both at American Anthology. For music for today's episode, I've chosen to pay a tribute to Alabama musical legend Henry Gip Gibson, who passed away just two months ago at the age of 99. Mr. Gip was a true bluesman, who worked as a gravedigger by day and played music at night. For the last 67 years, beginning in 1952, Mr. Gipp hosted a weekly party every Saturday night in his backyard in Bessemer, Alabama. Gipp's place evolved over that time into an amazing music venue, the last of the old-time juke joints in Alabama. Visiting Gipp's place was always like coming home, and every time I went, there was Mr. Gipp, front and center to welcome all who came. And come they did, from all over the country and around the world, to enjoy great music and true Southern hospitality. People of all ages and backgrounds were there every weekend, and Mr. Gipp was often quoted as saying, 
There was no black or white at his joint, only the blues. When I ducked in to see Mr. Gipp in May, it was one of the last parties he would be able to make it to before his health took a turn for the worse. From his wheelchair, at 99 years old though, he was still able to pick his guitar and play a few songs. While I don't want you to think this is what he sounded like in his prime, I did want to share with you the recordings I made that night, live from Gibbs Place in Bessemer, Alabama. Rest easy, old friend, wherever you are. I know there were thousands upon thousands of people waiting to greet you. So let's get to some stories about Alabama. Today, if you can find it, you should grab some Clyde Mays Alabama-style whiskey, or maybe just a tall glass of sweet tea. Sit back, relax, and let me take you to the track meets, courthouses, beauty pageants, and music clubs of the heart of Dixie. When James Cleveland Owens stepped onto the track at the Big Ten meet in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1935, he wasn't expecting much from himself. After all, he had recently fallen down a flight of steps, and he was suffering from a bad back. In fact, he wasn't even sure if he could compete. James was feeling a little stiff when he approached the starting line for the 100-yard dash. He took his stance, determined to try his best. Bang! The starting gun sounded, and the runners were off. When James crossed the finish line, not only had he won the race, but he had tied the world record in the event. Feeling a little more confident, he took a stab at the long jump, and when the dust settled, he had broken the world record in that event by a full six inches. In quick succession, he would set new world records in the 220-yard dash and the 220-yard low hurdles as well. That day, James broke three world records and tied a fourth, all within the span of about 45 minutes. That outing has more than once been called the single greatest athletic achievement of all time, but it's definitely not what we remember James most for. If you had seen James as a kid, you would have never believed he would grow up to break a world record in track. Born September 12, 1913, in Oakville, Alabama, James was the youngest of 10. He was a sickly child who suffered from chronic bronchial congestion and pneumonia. His family and friends in Alabama called him J.C. for James Cleveland, and he could often be found, from a young age, helping his father in the cotton fields. The Owens family moved to Cleveland, Ohio when James was about nine. His father would find work in a steel mill, and James would help the family out by delivering groceries, loading freight cars, and working in a shoe store. When he arrived at his new school, James's teacher asked him his name, to which he responded in a thick Alabama drawl, J.C., ma'am. Now he said J.C., but she heard 
Jesse, and the kid from Oakville would forever after be known as Jesse Owens. Jesse would attend Fairmont Junior High School, where he would meet one of his major influences, track coach Charles Riley. Riley saw something in Jesse and wanted the young man to join his team, but Jesse had work after school. The two of them would meet at dawn each morning so they could get a workout in before school began. It was also at Fairmont Junior High that Jesse met Minnie Ruth Solomon, who would grow up to be his wife. Jesse would attend East Technical High School in Cleveland, where he seemed to win every race he ran, including the Ohio State Championships three years in a row. Jesse would go on to Ohio State University, where he competed in 42 events and won all of them, including his incredible world record run in Ann Arbor. He won eight individual NCAA championships, four each in 1935 and 1936. Despite his success on the track, Jesse was not on scholarship, so during that time, he also pumped gas, waited tables, worked in the library, and as a night elevator operator. He also worked as a page at the Ohio State House. In July of 1936, Jesse boarded the SS Manhattan for a 10-day journey across the Atlantic. Their destination? The 1936 Summer Olympics in Berlin. The Olympics had been awarded to Berlin years before Adolf Hitler had come to power. At first, he scoffed at the idea, but later came to see it as a way of showing both his power and his belief in Aryan supremacy on the world stage. Because of what came next, it would also be the last Summer Olympics for 12 years until after World War II was finished. Jesse came at the Olympics with everything he had. On August 3rd, he took gold in the 100-meter dash. On the 4th, he won the long jump competition. On August 5th, Jesse won his third gold medal in the 200-meter sprint, narrowly beating out Mac Robinson, who you may remember from episode 14 of this podcast, was the brother of the great Jackie Robinson. That was supposed to be it for Jesse Owens, but on August 9th, he was tapped to run in the 4x100 sprint relay when two Jewish runners were controversially benched. Jesse would step up, though, as he always seemed to do, and bring home another gold for Team USA. Winning four track and field gold medals in one Olympic Games was a feat which would not be equaled for 48 years, until Birmingham, Alabama native Carl Lewis would do it in the 1984 Olympics in L.A. Jesse Owens was a hero. He had brought gold and glory to his country. Along with 17 other African-American teammates who had brought home 14 medals, he had certainly helped disprove Hitler's claims of Aryan superiority. Sadly, when he returned to the United States, though, he faced discrimination on the home front. He was, after all, still black in 1930s America and didn't receive so much as a telegram from the president, while white Olympians were welcomed at the White House in my hometown of Washington, D.C. Jesse took what endorsement deals he could from his fame, giving up his amateur status and dropping out of Ohio State. He would later say, quote, What was I supposed to do? 
I had four gold medals, but you can't eat gold medals. The rest of Jesse's life would have its ups and downs. At one point, he managed a dry cleaning business, and at another, he was the running coach for the New York Mets. In the 1940s, he toured with the Harlem Globetrotters, emceeing their halftime show and running exhibition races against anyone who wanted to challenge him. In 1951, Jesse returned to Berlin with the Globetrotters on a goodwill mission. He was given a hero's welcome. Jesse tried to spend as much time as he could working with underprivileged kids, trying to give them a hand up. He also often traveled as a goodwill ambassador for the United States. In 1976, President Gerald Ford awarded Jesse Owens the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He finally got his invitation to the White House. James Cleveland Jesse Owens died March 3, 1980 of lung cancer in Tucson, Arizona. The nation mourned the loss of a hero. He had touched so many lives over the course of his 66 years and would always be remembered as a true inspiration. In his own words, Jesse always reminded us, one chance is all you need. Only a few more than half of the United States have chosen a state beverage. More than half of those who have have chosen exciting milk to represent their state. Perhaps deciding not to be out boringed, Indiana went with water as their state beverage. I'll give Maine and Kentucky credit for choosing local soft drinks, Moxie and L81 respectively, to represent their states in this category. Now, you may remember from way back in episode one of this podcast that my hometown of Washington, D.C., while not a state, has chosen the Gin Ricky as its representative drink. I'll drink to that. Giving credit where credit is due, I must give a nod to the great state of Alabama for taking this choice even a step further and choosing a tipple that is fantastically and deliciously representative of the heart of Dixie. And they owe it all to one dedicated moonshiner who always said it was better to break laws than cut corners. Clyde May knew a thing or two about tough times. He grew up the son of a single mother during the Great Depression, along Rabbit Road in Bullock County. During World War II, Clyde commanded a 12-man rifle squad for the Army's 77th Infantry. He was awarded both a Bronze Star and a Purple Heart for his service. After the war, he returned home to Alabama, where he married and went on to have eight kids. He owned a small farm on Conecuh Ridge in Bullock County, but no matter how hard he worked it, he just never seemed to get ahead. Clyde's son, Kenny, remembers that their small farm was only good for a few things. Growing pine trees, sand spurs, 
peanuts, and youngins, and making moonshine. Clyde could never make much from the first four, but moonshining? Well, he just seemed to have a knack for that. Clyde May set up his stills along creek banks near the mouths of sand-filtered springs, which gave him pure Alabama spring water to work with. He built the stills himself using good copper and refused to use lead-based solder to put them together. He preferred a unique rectangular condenser, which he designed himself, believing it made a better finished product. Finally, he sealed his caps and pipes with biscuit dough, but only if it was made with White Lily brand flour, which Clyde considered the finest in the land. Clyde's son, Kenny, remembers helping his dad out when he was a kid, often working with his brother, Charles, who everybody just called Spooky. Kenny and Spooky were hauling 112-pound sacks of rye and 60-pound sacks of sugar deep into the woods where the stills were hidden. They brought the raw materials in by hand so as not to leave any tire tracks which might give up their location. Dropping their sacks off for Clyde to work with, the boys would return with five-gallon jugs filled with pure, clear Alabama moonshine. Clyde had a reputation for being one of the best moonshiners in the state. He used good clean equipment, quality local ingredients, and paid attention to detail. Perhaps the real secret to his success, though, was that Clyde didn't drink himself. Like so many before him, Clyde was simply doing what he had to do to provide for his family and put food on the table. He was a good father, and his children remember Clyde as having a warm laugh and a wonderful sense of humor. Sadly, what Clyde did best simply fell outside of the law, as Alabama had been dry since 1915. This simple fact, of course, put Clyde's moonshine in high demand. But he was never a greedy man and only produced about 300 gallons of moonshine a week. He always focused on quality as opposed to quantity. Now, most of what Clyde produced was moonshine, clear, unaged, distilled spirits. But that wasn't all that Clyde made. Once a year, Clyde would cask a batch of his shine in charred wooden barrels. He'd toss in some baked apples for flavoring and stash them away for a whole year. Clyde always felt that Alabama summers were so hot that one year was long enough to age his moonshine into a fine whiskey. He would bottle and distribute this aged whiskey to his best clients and closest friends around the holidays, calling it his Christmas whiskey. While his moonshine was good, his whiskey was so tasty that people looked forward to it all year. Clyde quietly ran his bootlegging business high on Conecuh Ridge for over 25 years, probably avoiding trouble because his production was so small scale. He was a good neighbor and a family man, and he made an excellent product, so his neighbors kept his secret. Any strangers who may have wandered into the area would have probably been intimidated by his simply stated, read, then run, no trespassing signs. But finally, in 1973, the law caught up with him. Clyde May was sentenced to 18 months in the custody of John N. Mitchell, the Attorney General of the United States. Clyde would only end up spending eight months behind bars, though, at the minimum security jail at Maxwell Air Force Base. 
his family, visited him on weekends. Clyde was released in 1974, ironically right around the time that Attorney General John Mitchell was convicted of crimes relating to his involvement in the Watergate scandal. Mitchell would also serve his sentence at Maxwell Air Force Base. The irony wasn't lost on Clyde, who said, quote, I got the last laugh. I might have been in his custody for all that time, but when I left, he took my bed, end quote. When Clyde was released, he was in his 50s and didn't really know anything else but moonshining. So he built some new stills and went right back to work. And every Christmas, his friends and clients look forward to that special aged batch with just a hint of baked apple. Clyde May passed away in 1990, and for only the second time since he had returned from World War II, his stills went dry. Not long after his death, his son Kenny wanted to pay a tribute to his father's legacy. Times had changed in Alabama, and so had the law. While distilling liquor was still illegal in the state, sale and consumption was determined on a county level. Kenny took his daddy's recipe to Bardstown, Kentucky, a place that knows a thing or two about making whiskey. Keeping in mind his father's attention to detail, Kenny went so far as to truck in pure Alabama spring water for the final cut. And thus, his daddy's old, coveted Christmas whiskey became Clyde May's original Alabama-style whiskey. In 2002, the first 4,000 bottles rolled off the line. People were thrilled that they could finally get Clyde's most prized recipe at their local liquor store. So much so, in fact, that in April of 2004, the Alabama legislature passed the Act of Alabama 2004-97, making Clyde May's original Alabama-style whiskey the official beverage of the state of Alabama. The act cited the use of pure Alabama water and a product representing family pride, independence, entrepreneurial drive, innovation, and respect for the traditions and craftsmanship which is evident in every bottle. Alabama Governor Bob Riley vetoed the act, but with bipartisan support, his veto was overwhelmingly overridden. In a tragic twist, just eight months later, Clyde's son Kenny was charged with selling liquor without a license, processing excessive quantities of liquor in a dry county, and selling alcohol to a minor. I guess despite everyone's best intentions, the apple didn't fall too far from the tree. Kenny pleaded guilty, and the State House wanted to repeal Act 97. Thankfully, this time they couldn't get the votes. Kenny, however, was prohibited from having any further involvement with the brand. Conecuh Ridge brand has moved around a bit over the subsequent years. But with the recent legalization of distillation in the state of Alabama, plans were announced to open a new Conecuh Ridge distillery in Troy, just 20 miles or so from where Clyde had placed his stills. And in 2017, Clyde's grandson, L.C. May, was hired as a brand ambassador to help share his granddaddy's whiskey with the world. As I'm writing this story, I'm sipping on some right now and I've got to say, it's pretty darn good. So I'll raise my glass to Clyde May. War hero, moonshiner, 
bootlegger, family man, and proud Alabamian. You certainly gave us the most interesting state beverage story in the country. If I were writing the ad campaign, I might choose the slogan, better than milk. But that's something only you, loyal listener, and I would understand. Cheers, Clyde, wherever you are. I hope you're still laughing and enjoying your part of the Angel Share. Monroeville, Alabama has been nicknamed the literary capital of the state, due in no small part to the people in the story I'm about to tell. Originally called Walker's Mill and Store, the town's name was changed to Monroeville when it became the Monroe County seat in 1832. The population today is about 6,000, but there were probably only around 1,200 people there when Nell Lee was born in Monroeville on April 28, 1926. Nell was named after her grandmother, but with a fun twist of having the letters reversed, since her grandmother's name was Ellen. Like most county seats in the country, the activity in town centers around the county courthouse, and that probably hasn't changed much since Nell was a kid. Nell's father, Amasa Coleman Lee, was a lawyer who spent a lot of time in that courthouse. Nell grew up next door to a kid with the precocious name Truman Streckfus Persons, and since both were a little strange, they became fast friends. Truman would later remember that the two of them spent a lot of time in that courthouse, going to trials like other kids might go to the movies. Like I mentioned, they were strange kids. But strange kids often grow into fascinating adults, and such would be the case for both Nell and Truman. While Truman would move away, the two would remain friends into adulthood. Nell would graduate from Monroe County High School in 1944 and spent one year studying at Huntington College before transferring to the University of Alabama at Tuscaloosa. Perhaps not surprisingly, she studied law, but also wrote for the school newspaper and edited the paper's humor magazine, Rammer Jammer. It was in her writing that she found her passion, and while her father was disappointed she decided against pursuing law, the apple still didn't fall far from the tree, seeing as he also co-owned and edited the local newspaper back in Monroeville. After spending a summer at Oxford, Nell decided to drop out of school to pursue a career as a writer. She moved to New York City in 1949 and took a job as a reservation agent for Eastern Airlines and British Overseas Airways. She wrote in her spare time, and in 1956, her friends helped her find an agent. He really liked one of her short stories and encouraged her to expand it into a book. The same friends that helped her find that agent gave her a pretty amazing Christmas present that year, 
a year's pay so she could take time off and write her book. By the spring of the following year, Nell had a manuscript titled, Go Set a Watchman. Her agent sent it to several publishers, and it finally fell into the hands of editor Tay Hohoff at the J.B. Lippincott Company. Tay would later comment about reading it for the first time. She said it was, quote, more a series of anecdotes than a fully conceived novel, but the spark of a true writer flashed on every line. Together, they began a two-year editing process, which involved a lot of give and take. Tay's biggest contribution, perhaps, was convincing Nell to rewrite the main character as a child instead of an adult. At one point, Nell became so frustrated, she threw the manuscript out the window of her apartment into the snowy New York winter night. She called Tay in tears, and Tay told her in no uncertain terms to march herself outside and retrieve it. She did, and began a major rewrite that very night. Finally, in 1960, the two were satisfied with what they had, and the manuscript went to the publisher. Nell would later remember, quote, I never expected any sort of success with the book. I was hoping for a quick and merciful death at the hands of the reviewers. But at the same time, I sort of hoped someone would like it enough to give me encouragement, public encouragement. I hoped for a little, as I said, but I got rather a whole lot. And in some ways, this was just about as frightening as the quick, merciful death I'd expected." End quote. A whole lot of encouragement may be an understatement. The book was published on July 11th 1960, and would become an immediate bestseller. It has sold 30 million copies in over 40 languages, and won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1961. It earned Nell the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2007, and the National Medal of the Arts in 2010. In 1999, it was declared the novel of the century. Her old pal, Truman Persons, who by then had taken his adoptive father's last name and become Truman Capote, thought it was great and loved the fact that one of the characters was based on him. Nell, who hadn't wanted people to mispronounce her name and call her Nellie, which was compounded by the fact that her last name was, in fact, Lee, chose to publish under her middle name. I'm sure at this point, you all know who I've been talking about. The name on that book cover was, of course, Harper Lee. And over the course of the editing process, the working title, Ghost at a Watchman, had been changed to the far more eloquent To Kill a Mockingbird. If I were to ask you how you would feel about a beauty queen performing surgery on you, 
you might just sit back and wait for the punchline. But in this case, I wouldn't have one to offer because I wouldn't be telling a joke, but rather the remarkable story of a remarkable woman from central Alabama. Deidre Downs was born on the seventh day of the seventh month of 1980 and grew up in Pelham, Alabama. When she was a freshman in high school, she got into a pretty bad car accident and would require two surgeries. It was this experience which would spark her interest in medicine, a field which, in her words, combined the intellectual challenge of science with the human element of working with people. Later, she would spend some time working with kids with cancer at Camp Smile-A-Mile in Alexander City and would decide that pediatrics would be her focus. Having always excelled both academically and athletically, when Deidre graduated from Pelham High School in 1998, she went to the University of Virginia on a volleyball scholarship. She found that the challenges of being a student athlete didn't allow her to focus on her academics as much as she would like. So after her freshman year, she came home to Alabama and transferred to Samford University in Homewood. Unfortunately, with her athletic career went her scholarship, so she had to find a way to make ends meet. Deidre decided to compete in some local beauty pageants to try and win some of the scholarship money they were offering. In 2000, she entered the Miss Alabama contest for the first time. She learned from the experience, and the following year, she came in fourth place in the competition. She finished in the same position in 2002, and that year, she also graduated magna cum laude from Sanford with a history degree and a double minor in biology and chemistry. Impressively, Deirdre was also a Rhodes Scholar finalist that year. In 2003, Deirdre was the first runner-up in the Miss Alabama pageant, and finally, in 2004, she was wearing the crown. The excitement didn't end there, though, because just a few months later, representing her home state of Alabama, Deidre Downs was crowned Miss America 2005. As Miss America, Deidre toured the country, serving as the spokesperson for CureSearch and the National Childhood Cancer Foundation. She also helped create the Curing Childhood Cancer license plate in Alabama, which donates $41.25 of every $50 plate sold to the Children's Hospital of Alabama. Due to a change of venue for the Miss America pageant the following year, Deidre ended up extending her term to 16 months and was the longest serving Miss America since the Great Depression. In the five years Deidre spent on the pageant circuit, she had been able to win $110,000 in scholarship money. This allowed her to enter the University of Alabama School of Medicine in Birmingham, where she earned her Doctor of Medicine degree in 2010. Deidre completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology in 2014 and a fellowship in reproductive endocrinology in 2017. The following year, she was back in the news when she married her girlfriend, Abbott Jones, in a private ceremony at the Birmingham Museum of Art. I must admit that 14 years after winning that Miss America pageant, she still looked pretty good in the gown. Deidre once said in an interview, quote, it can take courage to be who you are 
and to realize your worth as a person. But once you do, it is such a beautiful and freeing thing. It allows you to live with authenticity and compassion for yourself and others. In the same interview, Deidre mentioned one of her favorite quotes, this one by Coco Chanel. Beauty begins the moment you decide to be yourself. That's it for the show this week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you did, take a minute to rate and review the show. It only takes a minute, but it makes a big difference. And be sure to tell your friends. To find out more about me, my travels, to see pictures, or just to get in touch, pop on over to my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, gobeforeisleep.com. Catch me on Facebook, on Twitter at miles to go tweet and on Instagram at miles to go before I sleep. All, of course, using the number two for me and you. You can also now find podcast-specific pages at American Anthology. Music Today was a tribute to my old friend, Gip Gibson, who ran the last great Alabama juke joint for close to seven decades before passing away in the beginning of October. A star truly fell from the Alabama sky when you die, and you will be sorely missed. Thanks, as always, to Kevin McLeod over at IncomTech.com for background music, and to the great folks at FreeSFX.com. Our theme music comes from the legendary Memphis Slim. I'm hard at work on episode 21, the last episode of season one of American Anthology. I hope you'll come back for more stories from the heart of Dixie. Until then, I hope you can spend some time with friends and family over the holidays, and I'll see you very early in 2020. Thanks again for listening. I am your host, Mike Harding, and this is American Anthology. Keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.